This episode, I'm joined by David Scabina, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. In this episode, we discuss his book, Panpsychism in the West. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to some exclusive content, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. David Scabina, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, Panpsychism in the West, which was, I believe, republished in 2017 in a, an updated, more comprehensive edition uh, by MIT Press. Um, so before we sort of jump in with panpsychism, the specifics of panpsychism in the West, the book itself, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what it is you do and how this book specifically came about. Yeah, sure. So... So uh, I, uh, well, for several years, I was a, a, a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm not currently there. I left a couple of years ago looking for some other, other opportunities to, to uh, travel around, do a little bit more teaching. So I'm currently in Finland at the University of Helsinki, teaching some courses on uh, sustainability, environmental ethics, and technology issues. So that's what I'm doing uh, at the moment. Um, prior to having a PhD in philosophy, I had my first degree was in mathematics. So I had a master's in mathematics. And um, <clears throat> yeah, before long, I sort of tired of that topic. Uh, I was always kind of philosophically oriented and really wanted to apply um, some of my learning and ideas on, on science and mathematics to to the mind, right? To, so mm -hmm. to, to consciousness, how the mind works and, 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 the, and the, the way the brain functions. So early on, as I was transitioning from sort of my mathematical background to more of a philosophical uh, course of research, I was messing around with models of consciousness using mathematics and some nonlinear theories and some chaos theory and so forth. And then came up with what I thought was a plausible model of, of the way human consciousness worked. And when I had the model presented, uh, I presented it early in the early 90s. It was it was kind of striking because I realized that once the model was kind of articulated, it was it was a very general explanation. So it, it applied to sort of general nonlinear systems that would, would have functioned in basically the same way and would therefore share some of these characteristics with the human brain. Because of course, there's nothing, uh, you know, ontologically unique about the human brain. So it's, it's a structure of uh, atomic matter and energy, and it's organized in a certain way. But I mean, there's nothing, nothing uh, metaphysically unique about it. So, so conclusions about the way the brain works uh, should rightly gen generalize to, of course, other animals who share similar neural structures. Uh, but again, the, the 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 dynamics were were very universal. So it was it was pretty obvious to me that it applied it to, to other structures, plants for sure, um, even inanimate structures, non-living non structures, uh, systems of structures, pretty much they could all be modeled in these similar ways with these uh, nonlinear chaotic dynamics. And so, well, the obvious implication was, well, if, if in the human brain, these models yield consciousness or some kind of awareness, 
well, then maybe they do in other things as well. So maybe it's there in the animals and in the plants and even in the inanimate system. So that was really kind of an eye-opening moment for me personally, when I realized that the, the same basic approach could apply to virtually any physical system. Um, so that was kind of my initial insight in, into panpsychism, started me doing some research into the history, which I did really did not know at all at that point, and found out that there was actually quite a long history of that that kind of idea or similar idea. And that ultimately led um, to what well, was part of my uh, dissertation in philosophy. I got my PhD from the University of Bath in 2001. Uh, there was a couple of chapters in the dissertation were on panpsychism because I was still sort of in the early phases. Uh, but pretty quickly I realized it was uh, worthy of a book, book length treatment that had really never been done because there was so much of a history of this idea that really no one no one seemed to know about. I mean, pe people were sort of talking about panpsychism in the in the mid to late '90s, but they they it was clear they just did not understand the history, and 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 they still thought it was some kind of aberrant uh, new idea, some crazy idea that somebody just thought up the other day. And it's like, well, actually, no, it goes back like thousands of years. So, so that was when I. Uh, after I completed my dissertation, I decided to fully document the history because I thought we needed a permanent record of these ideas to show that this idea was actually not crazy, had a very long history of some very big name philosophers. And that was the initial version of my book, uh, as you say, Panpsychism in the West was published in 2005 by MIT Press, uh, did very well, sold very well, uh, was contributing to this resurgence in interest um, over the over the subsequent years, and then by the yeah, 2015 or so, uh, MIT was interested in doing a revised and expanded edition. So I uh, I agreed to do that, and that came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. Okay, well I've jotted down a few questions from that already in relation to your your sort of mathematics background and some of the stuff to do with being but um before we before we jump in fully with panpsychism um i do have to ask you the hermetics question you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the conversation uh who do you pick any three that i would like to have and they all miraculously speak the same language as well they can all yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i don't know that's a good question i you know it's hard uh, I guess hard to hard to pin down three. I mean, it's sort of like asking my three favorite philosophers because I'd like to see those guys all chatting together. So, uh, boy, I don't know. I suppose Plato, um, Nietzsche, and Schopenhauer. I mean, that that would be a nice threesome for me personally. Okay, okay. So, you're if you could could have such a room, it wouldn't really be to answer any specific questions. It would just be give me give me the best, give me the best of the best. <laughs> Just, just to hear those guys debate, debate it out, and uh, yeah, I mean that would that would be uh, like a fascinating discussion in itself. And you know, obviously, you'd love to chip in your own sort of question and your own two cents, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, that that would be a nice trio for me, anyway. Huh. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, those those three may may very well come back into our discussion on panpsychism, but that's pretty. Pretty clear yeah. room with a with an obvious reason for the, well, for the room. Yeah, I mean, all I, I've argued all three were panpsychists, so I mean, that's that's one sort of point of uh, agreement right there. But it would be an interesting discussion for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Definitely, Chop definitely Schopenhauer interests me, um, and this question of secularism. But we'll we'll get there. So, yep. alongside what you've already sort of defined panpsychism as that 
this model of consciousness that you you thought up, but obviously this isn't specific to you. This idea that consciousness isn't just uh, a human thing; it can also be in plants, inanimate matter, even systems, as you say. Basically, there's a yep. possibility for consciousness to be in absolutely everything, with no exclusions at all. Well, right. Uh, <laughs> in the strongest form, in the strongest form, no exclusions at all. And, and I tend, I tend to, to take the the strongest version mm. uh, of the thesis myself. So yeah, I would really, I've argued that really, sort of any system, any combination, any aggregate, um, you know, these all, these all have some, some kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, mental or experiential quality. So it's, it obviously gets to be difficult as to what specifically we're talking about. I. I personally tend not to use the word consciousness because that's so biased with the human kind of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, human conscious states and so forth, right? That it's it's uh, it's really hard to talk about consciousness in in inanimate systems. You know, just it just seems like it makes no sense. But but maybe to talk about something in a very brute sense like experientiality or subjecthood, or maybe even we could talk about qualitative states or qualia. I mean, that to me that's much not easy, but it's easier than to talk about, say, for example, consciousness. So I, I generally re kind of reserve consciousness for humans or let's say higher animals, but but certainly something something comparable, some kind of mental awareness, mental experientiality that, uh, yeah, I would say literally, literally in, in all structures and all systems. So when you, when you, when you say that, and I mean, obviously, as you outlined in the history, there's, there's plenty of different variants and should we say, uh, degrees of intensity of panpsychism but when you say yep. awareness that something has a, a form of awareness how would we how could one un attempt to understand that say for instance because there must be a difference i assume between the quality of awareness even though they both have awareness of a human and a rock for instance what sort of measures do we or methods sure. can we put in place to say like here's where we differentiate yeah, well, right. So, I mean, the, obviously, there's problems about really knowing what these states are like, what, what say, awareness states or experiential states are like. I mean, you know, there's, there's a famous problem of other minds, even within humans, right? So if you're familiar with, the, with the Bertrand Russell's argument, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's like, I mean, we, we can't even prove the, each other really are conscious beings, right? I mean, all we do is we, we look at the reactions, right? You talk a certain way, you respond a certain way. You know, if I pinch your finger, you yell, and okay, I understand that's probably correlated with pain, but I can't be sure because I can't really know. I mean, so, I mean, when you think even the easiest case, human to humans, how hard it actually formally is to recognize these mental states. And then you, then you go to, you know, animals, you go to plants, you go to inanimate structures, right? So the problems just really, really magnify. So we have to be really, I mean, we're really at a loss to kind of say a lot about these, these mental states that other things might, might share. Mm -hmm. But I, I think even, you know, there, there seems to be physical correlates of what we would call in ourselves these mental states. So when you're when you are physically in a certain mental state, we presume that the brain is in a certain state of activation. So something physically is going on that's corresponding to you being in a certain state, whether you're hungry or thirsty or you're feeling some sensation or you're seeing a you know, a red wall or something. I mean, presumably there's something going on in your brain physically that corresponds to that mental state. And, and I think maybe that's maybe the best kind of analogy. We can say, look, in any system, when it's, in, when it's experiencing some, something from its environment, 
some kind of sensation, some kind of energy input from its environment that's probably in a certain physical state that corresponds to whatever. If it's a rock that's out in the sun and it's a sunny day, so the sun is beaming down, it's heating the rock, at least on the upper surface, that puts the rock in a certain physical state. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, look, that there's there's a kind of a, a corresponding state that would that would go along with that that uh, you know is presumably something like an experiential state of sunlight or warmth or whatever it might be, something some very brute kind of form of existence, right? So um, so we sort of on the one level we kind of have that sort of picture to use on on another level, uh, and I've drawn analogies to uh, to particle physics and the way that particles really are not little points, they're not little balls, they're little fields of energy, right? And, and the fields diffuse out into space. And so in, in a very real sense, an atomic particle has, it, it exists out at arbitrarily large distances. So they really, they really have a probable, probabilistic wave function that goes out into space. Even an atom is inches and feet and miles away, technically unlimited, these fields extended a very small probability out into space. So there actually is, even from physics, there's a sense in which even subatomic particles um, are, are somehow have this uh, like, like, like feelers or you know, te- tendrils that are sort of going out into space and they're actually literally affected by what goes on in the, in the distant environment. So, so we know from physics that particles, particles themselves, actually are aware and sensitive of, of their near and their far field environment. So, um, so that's sort of another layer of, of, of this kind of awareness, the sensitivity to the environment, right? We, we know that mathematically we see it at the, at the smallest level. We know that higher level organisms sense uh, radiation and sound waves from, from distant sources and so forth. All that's accompanied by mental states. And then we have to make the analogy and say, well, look, maybe there's something like an internal mental state or subjective state that goes along with all of these physical systems because they're all aware and they're all sensing their environment in in some fashion. Mm. Okay, okay. So from that, I mean, would I be wrong in saying that for generally speaking, though, that doesn't seem to be a possibility of panpsychism, as your book makes clear, there's, there's, there's such a long history and so many different understandings of it but is there a sort of inherently uh, what we could say a hierarchy of of awareness within panpsychism um should it be understood sort of hierarchically in the sense that there's a greater level of awareness in humans than there is in say a rock for instance that same example or is it simply this is just two completely separate things and in doing that we're once again like doing the whole well obviously we're the best and we're anthropomorphizing the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, right. So th- this is, again, one, one of the interesting puzzles about consciousness in general and panpsychism in particular, right? How, how we can characterize these different states of uh, apparently simpler entities and then comparing them to ourselves. So, um, so I guess, right. So it, it does, because there is a structural hierarchy of sorts from, say, a rock to a plant to a human being, there's levels of complexity and order within order and, you know, moving complex molecules and all those kind of things that animals have maybe at a high level, the plants don't at a lesser degree and that rocks maybe not at all. So I I think it's probably fair to say uh, that, that corresponding to the, to the physical hierarchy, if you will, 
there's probably also something like a mental uh, hierarchy of, of states. It would, you know, it's only plausible if you're going to postulate these universal mental states that they're going to be simpler or more coarse or less refined or less articulate in a less articulate structure. Because there seems to be a match between the dynamics of the, say, the brain and the dynamics of the mental states. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, we know that when, when the, when the brain function de decreases or ceases, then the mental states seem to also decrease correspondingly. So, so, you know, there's some reasons why we, we could, we could say, yes, maybe there's a kind of, um, kind of a compression, you know, I like to think of it as maybe as a multidimensional, maybe we have, you know, a billion dimensional uh, awareness space because we have a billion active neurons or a hundred billion in our, in our brains. And maybe, you know, a rock because it has a far more restricted dimensional physical states. Maybe it's its scope of mental states is far more restricted. Maybe it just maybe has awareness of hot and cold and certain impacts and pressures and maybe moisture. And okay, you can imagine what the, what these kind of things might be. But it, it you could well imagine it's it's some kind of simpler, less complex. You hesitate to say lesser because that does sound like you were anthropomorphizing things, right? And sort of like ours is the best. But of course, there's more complex systems than an individual human. If only a system of human beings, which is sort of by definition more complex than an individual human. So, so if we, we have to look up the scale as well, not just down the scale and, and take that into account too. That's a whole interesting separate discussion. If you want to talk about sort of collective minds, that's really part of the same thesis. Um, so yeah, I, I would say in general, there's a kind of a hierarchy, not in a better or worse sense, but just a correspondence to physical structure. Probably there's a correspondence there with the, with mental states and mental structure as well. Okay. So the, the anthropomorphism then seems to be do, to do with like sort of, uh, as if it's something we're owed or something we actually own. Whereas from what you say about this sort of being in an awareness space, it's less that it's that is uh, that is human attention then that is the form of attention humans have you know rocks have this this amount what well, this let's say quality of attention yeah, we exactly have this quality, right. but it doesn't specifically mean that you know it's ours and we sort of get to you know keep it and border it off and well, yeah well right i mean presumably anything with a comparable complexity you know i i you know we have whatever 100 billion active neurons in our brain and that somehow is cor correlates to our active mental states and you know, you could imagine, for example, building a computer system, an artificial neural network with, say, 100 billion neural elements. And you might say, well, look, that's got as many comparable states as our brain. Maybe it's a, it has a kind of experiential richness uh, that we do. So, you know, you, 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 can, you can make a plausible argument to these other kind of uh, uh, as systems and organis or organisms as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Okay. So... As your book's titled Panpsychism in the West, was it mm -hmm. just a sort of uh, pragmatic sort of tactile decision just to say, right, we'll just deal with the West because often the differences are so glaring that it does, it, you know, it's a whole other method of study. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, it, often that's a life's work sort of thing. Or was there a, a specific reason, and you know, another reason? Yeah, well, yeah, more or less what you were saying, right? So, I mean, my whole, my whole background, like most, people in, in the West is in the Western tradition. And, and there was so much there. There was such a rich uh, tradition in Western philosophy for panpsychist ideas. I mean, that was easily sufficient to, to, to flesh out a full book. 
so I mean, there, there was a, there was enough material there. I wasn't I wasn't hurting for material. Uh, I didn't need to go to indigenous societies and Western culture and so forth. I mean, I could have done that as well, because there actually are. It's really quite interesting that um, there there are there is evidence of panpsychism in pretty much every indigenous culture that we're aware of. Uh, most of uh, Eastern philosophies are are sort of explicitly or implicitly compatible with something like panpsychism. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so myself, I just did not have sufficient background. I didn't have the training. I wasn't really competent to comment on 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 related ideas in in Eastern philosophy. So yeah, just just for my my own limitations, I sort of drew the line. Said, well, let's just look at the Western tradition. I did, I did edit a book in 2009 called Mind That Abides, and we had one or two guys who had some background on Eastern traditions, and they commented about There's a couple of chapters in that book on Eastern panpsychist traditions. So a little bit has been done, but pr- probably somebody needs to do another book someday called Panpsychism in the East, and that would be the compliment to, uh, to my book. So Yeah. yeah. Okay. How, how do you feel about the, the East-West divide? Do you think that's just sort of for, it's just a practical thing that, you know, we sort of know what we mean? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean it it seems to be fairly a fairly distinct tradition on what we would call Western tradition, going back to the Greeks and the Eastern tradition. Um, but you know you get these little funny little connections where you know you stories about even in ancient Greece they had travelers from the East that came over and brought certain ideas about you know reincarnation and so forth, and maybe even through ancient Egypt. There might have been sort of a, you know, kind of a cross fertilization. So, yeah, you know, I mean, at some level, there's these these interesting little connections. Um, I mean, you'd like to think if if human nature has some any kind of universal aspect to it, that you'd like to think somehow we would come to similar conclusions, even if we sort of grew up in traditional different historical eras. So maybe there's some some reason why we have some commonalities to to traditional Eastern philosophy. Hmm. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. I mean, pr- pragmatically, it's fairly distinct from what I know. There's different focuses and different emphases. You know, Schopenhauer famously uh, considers himself a basic, basically a Buddhist, and he was like, you know, impressed that he independently discovered Buddhism. Right? This was hmm. kind of one of his one of his big insights. So yeah, maybe these things kind of bubble up uh, both east and west in different ways at different times. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um. So in 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 your book, you sort of there is a chapter dedicated to panpsychism often being sort of misappropriated or misrepresented as other things. And one key key example is is vitalism, um, and and there's a, there's a few others. But would you would you say that many of these other um, you know isms are almost developments of panpsychism? There's something below them, like they they're not really on the same they're not really the same sort of form of thinking that they could be compatible, but it's, it's wrong to just mistake them because you could sort of be a vitalist panpsychist, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Right. So when, when I've talked about panpsychism, it's, I, I, I treat it as like a, it's not really a theory of mind. It's a meta theory of mind. So it's kind of a theory about theories of mind. And specifically it's, it's about who has this thing called a mind for whatever your concept of the mind might be. Mm-hmm. Right. The psyche refers to to the mind, not to the soul. So it's not a it's not a concept about soul or religion. It's it's really about the mind. And, and it's really it's really it's kind of this basic question. Right. I mean, about how many things in, in the world or the universe 
have something like a mind. And, and the panpsychist says it's, it's, it's very extensive, maybe universal, maybe not quite universal, there's some conditional forms of panpsychism. But it doesn't really describe the nature of that mind and the relation of that mind to that body or that object that might have that mind. So, so like I said, you can you can be a panpsychist, uh, you know, physicalist. You can be a panpsychist dualist. You can be a panpsychist idealist. I mean, a lot. It's compatible with a lot of these different theories, which are sort of specific theories about the mind. Um, and panpsychism says, you know, basically, yeah, that 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 could be true. And by the way, that would apply to everything. So if you're a dualist, you can be a Cartesian dualist, basically, and you can say, well, look, that, that could be true, and it, and it applies to everything. I mean, I'm not. I think it's kind of crazy, actually. But, but in principle, you could be a Cartesian dualist panpsychist and say, look, everything has a dual, you know, mind and kind of a soul mind or something in addition to the body. So, so in that sense, it's compatible with many other, most other theories of the mind. And, and, and it just argues that whatever that theory is, it's, it's of some kind of universal extent. And I, and I think people misread it because I think it's like some kind of independent thing that's you either have to sort of vote for that one or sort of conventional physicalism or something like this. And that's really not the case, right? It's, it's, it's a higher level concept uh, above the level of the basic theory of the mind. And it just it really answers the question about how extensive the mind really is. So that, that's, I think that's the right way to think about it. Mm, okay, okay. And would you, could we say that the perhaps the theory that we're all one mind but we're each like a different intensity of it but it's literally a huge singular mind is that in keeping with panpsychism or is that two separate things <laughs> or is one, that one like well, like, well, like one big universal mind yeah maybe, one big universal mind but everything that is alive in it is you know like a, just an intensity of that singular huge awareness yeah um well, again, that's a, so that's a good question, right? Because in, in principle, panpsychism is going down the scale to the smallest entities and up, up the scale to the largest entities, the largest objects, the largest collections, and including the conceivably the universe as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and, and, and like I say, I, I, I've argued in behalf of that kind of view. So I, I would say, yeah, they, in a sense, there is some kind of highest level say some kind of cosmic mind at some level. Um, um, the question is that, what, so what's the relationship between that, say that highest level mind and our mind, my mind or your mind, and then a plant and then and, and an animal and a rock or some, some smaller thing. Um, so that's, that sort of gets to one of the, another, another sort of uh, open question in panpsychism is, is the nature of this hierarchy. It's, it's not that there's like a master you know, most panpsychists would not say there's some master cosmic mind of which we're just individual thoughts or, you know, little, little, little tidbits or, you know, like a dream or something. I mean, that's, that's a little bit too, too kind of flaky, I would say, for most uh, standard uh, philosophers. But you can imagine, easily imagine that there are levels, a hierarchy of mind within mind, uh, you know, at the highest level of the universe and then down to galactic minds or solar system minds and then you know down to planetary minds and you know down to individual beings and then down to the particles within them so so for panpsychics I mean, there is always an importance of sort of bordering off saying right this is this thing's mind it's not all uh, uh sort of hazy and interconnected completely yeah well right there's again there's different different forms and different different notions about this but um you know i, I think 
you can think about concrete, discrete levels of mind that are that are nested hierarchically. And 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 uh, I mean, it's just like physical structure. There's structure within structure within structure all the way up to the universe. And we have no problem with that. To me, there's a natural parallel to the mental states sort of being nested hierarchy within the same kind of structure. Um, I mean, it's interesting to, to speculate on the relationship between these levels of mind, right? So what, what can our level mind know about a collective social mind or a planetary mind or, you know, let alone a cosmic mind? It's, it's an interesting question and it's kind of, kind of nice to do speculations about what, what is the relationship between the individual levels of mind? What can one level know about the other? Seems to be not very much because there's no... We, you know, we have no evident dialogue or conversation going on, even though people think they talk to God. I mean, I'm sure that's something else, but, but, you know, it seems to be impossible to have a real kind of a kind of interaction with higher or lower levels of mind. Uh, but, but there are certainly um, consistent analogs and, and logical, rational analogs that we can infer properties of higher and lower orders of mind. So I think maybe, maybe that's the kind of the right path to be thinking about when it comes to that that question okay okay that makes sense so you you don't think that panpsychism and obviously it's a difficult to sort of say just panpsychism because as you know i will emphasize to listeners as you make clear in the book there's there's over the history of what we could consider panpsychism the whole history there is wild very you know variations between different thinkers but do you not think there is an inherent link between panpsychism and uh sort of the the immediate sort of cultural religious temper uh, temperament of 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 the context that person is writing within you know i think it seems to me that it would have immediate connotations on a religious or a spiritual level well that's a good question um in general it do it does not i think when you look at the history of the panpsychism you don't really see that connection between religious thinking and and philosophers i mean my book is focusing on philosophical thinking philosophers formally speaking and you know they tend to be pretty pretty rational bunch and they're generally are there are exceptions but of course they're not not overtly religious most of them uh, a few of them were i mean some actually sort of made kind of religious arguments for panpsychism and they they would say things well like you know if, if god is omnipresent you know in some sense this godly spirit or something is it, it must be inherent in everything because god made everything in his sort of his imprint or something is left in everything. So, I mean, you can sort of conceivably make a kind of a theological argument for something like panpsychism. Um, but, but, you know, the theory in principle, I, I would say, is not religious per se. The psyche, again, we need to understand psyche as mind or awareness, not psyche in the sense of soul. It's traditionally translated as soul, particularly in ancient Greece, but you know, it's, it's nothing like this sort of ghostly soul that people think about that, you know, when you die and your little ghost goes up to heaven. I mean, so it is really nothing to do with that. Um, there may be a sense in which it sort of inspires a kind of religious awe, I guess you could say, if you think about the cosmos as kind of this vast network of ensouled uh, and, uh, let's say, in-minded beings. I mean, it is kind of really kind of a, an awe-inspiring sort of concept. So it could, it could invoke something, I guess, comparable to a re religious kind of sense of, uh, sense of uh, impression about things. But, um, but yeah, in, in general, I, I think it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty much a naturalistic, uh, rationalistic 
thesis about what the mind is. And even though it sounds, it could sound religious, it sounds a little new agey, it sounds a little bit crazy, but you know, when you really get into the nuts and bolts about it, and you look at what these famous philosophers have said about it, you realize it's a really a very concrete, very, very, you know, hard-nosed kind of, you know, uh, kind of theory about, about the nature of the mind and what things have it. So it's, it doesn't fit well within our current society, which is generally sort of biased towards human uniqueness mm. and uh, tends to not be very open to traditional metaphysical views, which really this is. So there's there's various sort of contemporary and, and historical reasons why we tend to tend to either dismiss the idea or just call it merely religious or call it you know somehow abstractly metaphysical, which has no real connection to anything. But, but I think that's kind of an aberration. If you look at the long history of thinking about it, um, uh, it, it really has sort of this long and, and really a noble kind of tradition. And I think maybe it's, it's been resurrected in the last 20 years or so. And I think it's really, really recovering the level of respectability that it had for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has anyone, you know, just on, I guess, on the almost the opposite of that idea of the religious idea, has anyone mm. theorized of sort of a Darwinian panpsychism, whether some sort of uh, perhaps, uh, you know, if we talk of it being attention and being a sort of perhaps an evolutionary form of panpsychism, where there's actually an evolutionary process is going on within these these levels of attention. Or am I completely off the mark? Yeah, there? well, no, I mean, there, there are connections. I mean, ever since, you know, since evolutionary theory sort of dawned on humans, uh, Darwin, obviously, in, in, say, 1860, 1865 or whenever. Um, so, yeah, it's been natural to make connections to evolutionary theory, to, um, to ideas about the mind. Uh, pretty quickly, there were some philosophers, early philosophers, uh, who was it, Fechner and he- Heckel and a couple of these other guys, who, who made the connections there, um, they said, well, look, evolution is a kind of continuity theory, right? So humans aren't discrete beings. We came from apes and apes came from smaller mammals and those came from whatever, reptiles, who came from aquatic fish or the, you know, so there's this long continuity. There, there's, a, there's a continuum of life. And, and philosophers have used a similar argument said, look, there's also a continuity of mind. Mm-hmm. When you look at the, 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 the long gradual process of evolution, there was no magic state at which suddenly, you know, boom, out of nowhere, you know, four-legged creatures appeared or, you know, mammals appeared. I mean, it was, it was all a very, very slow, incremental step-by-step process. And philosophers would argue, look, it's, it's similar to the way the mind works. It, it's, it's much more plausible to say our complex conscious awareness that we have grew over time, evolutionary time, from a, from a simpler, less complex, less articulate mental state, but it was on a continuum. But there was no point in evolutionary history when suddenly, boom, here comes a mind, and before that you had no mind at all. That's, that would be like impossible, really, in any kind of rational sense. Just like in evolution, you wouldn't expect some, some boom, some, you know, the magical appearance of a dinosaur when you didn't have any of the pre- preceding uh, you know, uh, organisms. So, so evolution actually gave a new kind of a kind of impetus to this continuity sort of argument that says structures evolved, you know, gradually over millions of years, and and mind could do the same thing. So, in that sense, I would say that there is a kind of an evolutionary argument because it it follows that same kind of line of thinking, and and um, um, I mean, you know, even people as diverse as uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who who kind of, you know, famously sort of argued that um, 
everything sort of has this interior nature. It was basically a panpsychist version that Teilhard had, and and he was big into evolution, this kind of cosmic evolution. But it was the same idea. He's him and thinkers like him uh, were were building into evolutionary theory a parallel version about how mind and consciousness evolved from very simple states at elementary particles to 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 humans and beyond. So so there is an interesting connection be between those two ideas. Okay. Okay. Hmm. I think I think I've probably um, sort of projected my own, as you say, like it seems very new age and spiritual. I think I've projected that onto reading it, and actually now, as you explain it, it is uh, it's coming across more as a, almost a scientific philosophy as opposed to uh, some form of, um, I guess, you know, metaphysics with regards to what it is to what it is to be, as opposed, as you say, it's a meta theory of the mind. Uh, right. Not, not in relation to the human, into human existence. So this question of you know can psychism, uh, panpsychism, and materialism coexist seems to be that it sort of it just is a is a materialism. It, it is a materialism. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, right. So I mean, in a sense, you you could say that. Um, I mean, you know, conventional materialism or physicalism really has a kind of a big problem, and I, I've argued against it elsewhere that. You know, if everything is just just uh, physical stuff, matter and energy, whatever it might be, um, we have a really hard time even explaining the human mind because consciousness just does not seem to fit into a purely physicalist picture of the world. So that's that's it's been a big problem. It's a big dilemma for anybody who wants to be a physicalist. You know, talk about the causal closure of the physical world, and we have no need for you know conscious uh, mental states in in the way the the physics themselves works, which is arguably true, but but you have the undeniable fact about your own conscious awareness. Um, and, and the question is, how does that fit into a physicalist view? And it does not fit very well at all. I mean, it's it's arguably the a, a huge glaring hole at the center of any physicalist theory. So, so if we have that problem with our own minds, that we can't even fit our own minds into a physicalist worldview, uh, you, you could say, well, look, you certainly can't really fit a panpsychist view in, which says everything sort of has a kind of mental state. So, it, so um, to me, at least, and to, to, to several other thinkers, you know, we've argued that that there's some basic flaws in the whole physicalist picture, even though it's the kind of the dominant view today, mm. uh, simply because it's unable to count even for the most obvious case of the mind, which is the human mind, uh, let alone the broader minds, uh, animals and plants and so forth. Um, so yeah, I you know I would I would for me I would tackle it in, in that angle. I would say, well, look, you know, we, we need to address the problems with physicalism and, and look at something something beyond physicalism because that's probably not going to do it because it can't even account for for the most obvious case of the of the human consciousness. Mm -hmm. I mean, speaking of you know physicalism as the is the dominant view, it's it sort of became apparent and correct me if I'm wrong in your book that panpsychism is always there. You know, it keeps cropping up. But it's never really taken on fully as opposed to the other things which are going on at the time. It's almost not spoken about in those terms. It's speaking about spoken about in different terms. And I guess now it's much easier for us to unify it as a theory with the history that we have. But do you do you see any clear reasons as to why it's been ignored? Or do you just think it's a case of it's one of those theories that perhaps just doesn't merge well with Western culture and we find it tough to accept? Yeah, or, well, or I mean sympathize with. Right. Yeah, I mean, in a pragmatic sense, you you could really um, you could pretty much ignore it. I mean, you can say, look, okay, whether rocks have a conscious state or mental state or not, I don't care. You you could just <laughs> ignore it. You can just you could just deal with them as rocks, you know, as as 
as discrete physical objects. And you can do the same with plants and animals. I mean, you know, we, we, we've arguably, that's what we've done with all uh, living creatures on, on the earth. We basically treated them as insentient beings and we've used them as, as we liked because we, the argument was explicit or implicit. These things don't, they're not conscious. They're not aware. They don't feel pain. Even, even higher animals, some people have argued, yeah, they're not really, they have instinctual reactions, but they're not really feeling anything that they don't really get scared. You know, I mean, people evolve kinds of crazy arguments and you're basically just ignoring any possible mental states of these things. And you just do what you want because we have the power. We can do that. Um, so certainly it's possible to function, you know, without, without uh, even taking into consideration the possible mental states of other, other things. Arguably it's actually easier because you don't have to, there's nothing to take into account. So you could even argue even on an ethical basis that it's a lot easier to just assume that animals and plants really have no consciousness at all, because then I, then I don't have that level of concern that I might, might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's actually easier to conduct day-to-day business in this society by assuming just either ignoring panpsychism or just assuming that it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, perhaps this is what I sort of would be another way I'd take the religious question, but I'd also open that to up to social and political things is that on as this meta uh, meta level as you've described described it, it it's yep. interesting to view but as soon as you take it seriously as you say uh there is a whole host of ethical questions there which would touch on you know religious ground well hang on if if there is a potential for awareness within other beings then we need to re- probably maybe rethink some scripture in terms of the soul like what else is going to heaven right um but also on a social level you say well okay if there's you know we need we now need to sort of, sort of perhaps write up something in in law which is right from this level of consciousness or this level of awareness down you can do what you want and then this you know <laughs> different levels of awareness but sure. that only happens if if people are i guess willing to entertain it seriously and i guess uh, along with physicalism being the dominant view the other dominant view which seems to have never really been uprooted is the idea that humans are humans are tip top and we're the best and we're the center of everything right <laughs> yeah of course exactly right so t- typical anthropocentric views that we have within our philosophy it's in our religion it's rooted in christianity you know uh you know the historian lynn white famously called christianity the most anthropocentric religion that ever existed because it's all it's really about us you know we're in god's image and we have a soul and we've been given dominion over the earth so i mean there's lots of long-standing threads about why we think we're special and different and exceptional and you know okay i'll say so in some ways i suppose we are there's obviously no other creatures that can do what we can do so okay but but um that's from our view though right you know of course certainly from our view you could say oh skyscrapers are great but it's like yeah but that's you know they're not they're not great to a horse exactly (laughs) exactly and and, you know, and obviously animals can do a lot of things we can't do. I mean, they're, they're faster. They have better eyesight. They have better senses. I mean, they're, you know, they're so, you know, okay, so we can maybe think abstractly about, okay, well, I mean, that's nice for us, but it doesn't do much for them. And arguably it's harmful to everything else. So, yeah, right. So, the, so there's a longstanding religious and, and, and in a sense, even philosophical vein of, uh, of anthropocentric thinking. So it's, it's a little bit hard to overcome that, that sort of egoism, right, where we're, we are special and different. Um, yeah, certainly it's going to, it's going to be a challenge to any kind of traditional religious view because there seems to be nothing in the Bible, for example, that would indicate anything like a panpsychist idea. There's nothing that suggests that God gave souls to other things other than, than humans. Um, so it's, it would be, it would be a tough, 
tough stretch to try to make the connection to traditional religion. Um, but I, I, I mean, I guess I don't worry about that. I mean, it's, it's one more thing, you know, along with physics and science and astronomy and everything else. All these other things are really incompatible with traditional religion. And, and I guess panpsychism is one, one more thing. So I, I don't worry about that one too much. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I think, you know, we managed to cover a lot in a short time there. Um, is there anything, anything key that we've, we've, we've missed that you think you feel we should add in? Um, in terms of, you know, I don't want to misrepresent panpsychism. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, like, like I say, it's just, just a, it's a fascinating history for people just are interested in the history of philosophy. And it's really, I think, surprising because when you look at some of these big name philosophers and, and it, it may be people that you would, would not have normally thought about or, or would have, would have said, well, that, that person was never, would have, would have never said anything that sounds panpsychist, but, but you look at the readings and there they are. So, I mean, I was impressed time and time and again, when I would come across passages, that was clearly a panpsychist orientation or sensitivity or, or, you know, some kind of intuition that these, that these philosophers were, were expressing. And, and you would, you would never really see that discussed anywhere. Um, I mean, it's, it's really kind of, even by the, you know, the experts, right? So kind of every big name philosopher has their series of experts who like to talk about them. And, and even the experts don't really want to talk about the panpsychist thread because it sounds like vaguely embarrassing or it's like a little bit loopy or something, right? And they don't want their guy to sound a little bit kind of crazy. So they just don't even talk about the panpsychist thread. It's really kind of astonishing. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a piece, I need to do one on Nietzsche because, uh, People have really dismissed uh, Nietzsche's view about um, uh, will to power, right? It's kind of everything is sort of intrinsically this will to power. It's really a universal theory in Nietzsche. If you look carefully at what he says, you look at the notebook entries, and it's really kind of that the phrase is an ontological will to power. It's, he's not just talking about people. It's not just biological creatures. It's really everything is this embodiment of this will to power. And if this will is there, the will is a basic aspect of, of the psyche or the mind. So it's, it's really kind of there in Nietzsche. You look at Nietzsche scholars and it's either completely ignored or it's talked about only in a human context. In the rare cases where they do talk about it, they disparage the whole idea and they say, well, of course, Nietzsche was not a panpsychist. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just it's just laughable. I mean, I'm, if I ever write an article, I'm going to just be blasting away at these people because they, 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 they're just it's just appalling how how uh, how pathetically are they either misreading or, or overlooking these key passages. Right. So. Uh, I mean, well, a similar example of cost there as well. You know, if they, if they admit to that, then they're going to have to go back and change. Yeah, change right. Exactly. <laughs> and they got to change their tune, and they got to say, "Well, I was wrong. Oh, nobody wants to do that, right?" No. <laughs> I remember. I remember a, a similar thing with uh, Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And and for me, that was one of the big surprises in me when you when there's a couple of passages in Aristotle. He's talking about the pneuma, which is kind of this sort of spiritual life life entity in his late biological writings, and he's. He's talking about sort of this pneuma pervades everything. And he, there's a famous line. He says a sort of a kind of soul or a sort of soul is in everything. Everything has a kind, a sort of soul to it, a sort of psyche. And, and, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, he's clearly speculating in this panpsychist direction. And, and uh, I, I was talking to an Aristotle scholar at the uh, University of Michigan a number of years ago. And I, I said, hey, what about this pneuma thing? You know, I, I try to look for I said, I don't find anybody. Nobody's talking about it. And it's clearly kind of this panpsychist thing. And this guy's like, I said, well, why, why don't I read about it? He's like, 
Yeah, he says, you know, <laughs> they, they, they just don't know what to do with it. That was his answer. Is it, you know, yeah, the scholars, they know about it, but they just don't know what to do about it. So they just push it aside yeah. and we don't want to talk about it. It sounds a little bit nutty and we don't want Aristotle to look nutty. So we're, we're just going to, we just don't know what to do with it. And, and, it's, and it's, it's really kind of, it's just funny to me how, how this happens time and time again, right? These, these big name philosophers and they don't want their, they don't, you know, the experts don't want to talk about it. So it just never gets to every, every philosopher has a skeleton in their closet, right? That, yeah, well, that, right, like, exactly. They've uh, it like you study the main works and you come to this nice, neat, just thing, and the, you can put the philosopher in a box, and we can say they're X, Y, and Z, and then uh, you know someone says to yourself says, "Well, hang on, what about that other thing they wrote? You know, extensively yeah, exactly. on." You know, no, no, don't, don't we don't don't worry about that. You yeah, know? and no, it happens, happens. You know, it, there's there's cases of it with every philosopher, and I think I think it's almost like an academic sort of. You can sort sort of understand it because otherwise. You know, it's it's nice yeah, to have well, that neat package, but ultimately it does damage to philosophy in the long run because you, yeah. how honest are you actually being? You yeah, know? exactly. I mean, I right, I can understand you want to focus on certain things. I mean, that's okay. That's that's nice to do. But 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 you know, don't disparage the other ones when it's there, right? Don't dismiss it. You got to at least be open to it if, if if these if these threads are there in their ideas. That and that was kind of what I one of my objectives was really to show it's not just one or two guys. It's like dozens of major thinkers. Are oriented this way, so we don't need to sort of, you know, feel vaguely uh, like uh, afraid of talking about this because it's actually a, a, a really kind of a powerful and, and widespread uh, concept. So, so you know, for people out there who are kind of curious, I guess that's really the first step is kind of go back in, in the history and really understand what these guys have said over over time. And it's it's not it's it's not like they wrote volumes of books on these things. Sometimes it's just a, a small little passage. Maybe it's just a couple paragraphs as part of a larger discussion. But but it's indicating so it's a little window, it's a little insight to their thinking about what kind of things in the universe might have a mind, you know, and, and what things don't. So, um, so I mean, if you're curious, just just kind of look look through that history. That would be a place I would advise people to start. Right, that's kind of why I wrote the book on panpsychism in the West. Get people to start by thinking, but just looking at these little small snippets and insights by these by these you know famous thinkers in history, and and just to kind of see what get a feel for their thinking. And that would naturally lead you to more more recent writings, because there is kind of an active current movement in philosophy that is talking about uh, panpsychism. Um, probably our our our, our biggest uh, current convert is Galen Strassen. So uh, yeah, I mean he's sort of a big, big name, uh, you know, contemporary philosopher. Comes from the Strassen family. Peter Strassen was his father, um, and and uh, he's he's uh, certainly the most prominent advocate today, and he's written very forcefully, and some really kind of compelling, just really classic essays on behalf of panpsychism and against the idea of emergence that mind can't emerge out of nothing. That that makes no sense. That would be like a miracle. It'd be like magic. Well, we we don't accept magic. We, you know, we expect rational, logical uh, aspects to our worldviews and. And in any rational, logical worldview is going to be panpsychist. That's just how it is for various reasons. So, um, so it's kind of nice to go from, from the history to sort of look at some of these recent advocates like, like uh, Strassen and some others um, who are taking the idea seriously. And that, that's kind of really what, what has been the hallmark of the recent years. There's been a couple of dedicated books in, in the last five or ten years. There is one called Panpsychism by Oxford University Press. Had some interesting chapters uh, in it. Uh, recently, Rutledge published the Handbook of Panpsychism, 
and that's a, got a lot of current writings. I did two chapters in that book um, as well. So uh, looking at arguments pro and con and some of the critiques. I mean, it's really interesting to sort of follow the the current thinking as well. And um, and it's I mean, it's really there. I mean, even I'm, I'm seeing other articles, even just in articles that are talking about uh, just standard physicalism or standard philosophy of mind. Now people are saying, well, oh, by the way, there's a panpsychist extension to this. And, you know, they're, they're mentioning it even in passing, which is nice, because in the past they would have never talked about it at all. So the idea really is kind of gaining sort of a currency where people are at least open to it. They're willing to talk about it, even if they don't agree. At least they're willing to tell, give some reasons why, instead of just saying, well, that's stupid, <laughs> which is what they did in the past. Well, that's stupid. We don't need to talk about it. That's what John Searle used to do. So instead of doing that, okay, at least they're treating it seriously. They're giving arguments. Maybe there's an argument for it or against it. Okay, I mean, we're willing to entertain these things. So it's really it's really become a lively and kind of active field um, within philosophy of mind. So it's uh, on, on several levels, historically, currently, in terms of ethics and environmentally, because you're seeing the application of uh, psyche to animals and plants. Obviously, as, as you said and we mentioned, there's ethical implications there. I mean, you're seeing, you know, uh, yeah, animal life and uh, even in plant life, you know, if you're going to you're going to use these things to, to 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 eat or to to sustain your your livelihood or your or your civilization. I mean, these are things to take into consideration and we cannot really ignore those. And arguably, we we cost ourselves, we, we penalize ourselves and we penalize nature when we ignore these aspects of nature. And, and some of us have argued that that's a way to kind of restore things, to actually fix the, the situation with respect to environmental dysfunction, environmental de destruction, is to really kind of re-envision it as a kind of an animated place, whether it's the animals or plants and right down to the soil and the rivers and the streams and the oceans and the mountains and the whole thing. It's, it's really kind of a way, a new way of viewing nature uh, in a naturalistic and a rational way. That, that may well move us ahead on this kind of sustainability path that we need to get onto real quick or, or we're not going to be around very long. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I was going to ask um, how panpsychism would be helpful today, and that seems to be the clearest reason, right, to do with... Yeah, uh... I, exactly. I, I, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not just abstract theory, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know regular stuff, you know, people, animals, the people that you're eating, things that you're eating and that you're, you're using in your, in your material process, natural materials in your society and your economy. I mean, yeah, these things have, have really profound uh, ethical and pragmatic consequences. And, and we're looking for ways to, to solve the environmental crisis and to treat nature with more respect and to give rights to nature and all these kind of things. And this is, this is, there's a natural connection to, to their uh, mental states and their awareness and their experientiality. So, so it's a, it's a pragmatic thing too. So it's, it's not just interesting philosophy. It's, it's kind of real life environmentalism uh, with, with real, real potential to, to improve our situation. Mm. Okay. Um, whereabouts I'm assuming we I know we can find the book on Amazon, but I'm assuming we can also find it via MIT press. Is there anywhere else? All major places, uh, basically. Yeah, just right. Pretty much any any online bookseller will carry it. You can go directly to MIT Press. They'll carry it. Uh, it's quite widespread. Most libraries will have it. So you could obviously request it through a library uh, system if you have access to one. Um, 
So yeah, I, I I think people have no 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 trouble tracking that down if they're interested. Okay. Are you are you working on anything at the at the moment, or is it all pan psychic, or is there something else? Ooh, yeah. Anyway, something you're not allowed to talk about. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Um, well, I, sorry. I mean, I I personally I'm working in a diverse area of interest, so I am talking about sustainability issues. I'm I'm teaching currently in environmental ethics. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work in philosophy of technology. So I'm, I've sort of uh, been a big critic of technological society and I've written some books and published along those areas. Um, so, yeah, I've got some, let's say, enough enough diverse interests that various things have been keeping me going at, at different times. Um, um, working on a book currently on um, technology population sustainability issues with respect to ethics. So not directly related to panpsychism. Um, so yeah, current current projects are probably not so much in that direction, at least not explicitly, uh, but I'm always, it's always part of my lectures. It's always part of my the course material that I'm teaching. And it even, it even crops up in uh, various other uh, venues where I'm giving a lecture, giving a talk to something. So, so it's always kind of, kind of there in the background. No, no active big projects though at the moment. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that seems like a good place to finish up. Uh, David Scabina, thanks very much. Yeah, James, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back sometime.